broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to We've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. And hello, Las Vegas. It is time for the Frittle Show. I'm Crystal Heath. You're listening to KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church. Our Easter Sunday celebration is coming quickly. Just three days from now, we will be celebrating Easter here at Liberty at 8 o'clock, 9.30 and 11.15 Sunday morning. Hope you and your family can join us for that. Today, you know, I was reviewing what I'm about to talk about, and uh, it's just not like... I'm going to warn you right up front. It's not like an encouraging, uplifting, exciting, happy kind of show today. It it really is pretty much the opposite. And we're going to begin today with this truly tragic uh, account from Paris, France, which you may have seen on the news. Uh, I'm going to start with a CNN story, and we're going to launch from here today. A CNN headline, Holocaust survivors murder in Paris probed as anti-Semitic attack. Uh, Two people have been arrested over the murder of an 85-year-old Holocaust survivor in Paris that is being investigated as a suspected suspected anti-Semitic attack, a French judicial source told CNN on Tuesday. Morel Knoll was stabbed 11 times in her apartment in the 11th... uh, I don't know what the word is. It's some sort of French word. Uh, she was stabbed in her apartment in Paris before her home was set on fire, according to government spokesman Benjamin Gravou, who recounted the attack on Twitter. Her body was discovered in her apartment on Friday. Two men are suspected of carrying out the attack, one of them being Noel's 27-year-old neighbor, who was previously jailed for sexually assaulting the daughter of Noel's domestic helper, the source told CNN. The other is a 21-year-old homeless man who was known to police for acts of violence. The source did not name the men. The two men have been indicted for voluntary homicide because of the true or supposed religion of the victim, theft aggravated by three circumstances, and degradation of the property of others by a dangerous uh, means. Noel evaded the Veldehip Roundup, which was ordered by Nazi occupiers in 1942 and resulted in the mass arrest of 13,000 French Jews. Those detained were held at the Val de Viv cycling track in Paris before thousands were deported to the Auschwitz concentration camp in Nazi-occupied Poland. On Monday, French President Emmanuel Macron described Knowles' killing as a dreadful crime on Twitter and said, quote, I have reaffirmed my absolute determination to fight against anti-Semitism. Uh, and then CNN goes on, uh, they, they talk a little bit more about this, and then they say the murder comes a year after the killing of Sarah Halimi Atal, 65, whose death is being investi- investigated by prosecutors as anti-Semitic. The French Jewish community, which had approximately 400,000 strong, is the largest in Western Europe, has seen an increase in anti-Semitic attacks in recent years. In 2015, four people were killed in a terrorist attack at a kosher supermarket in Paris. In 2012, four people were killed, including three children, outside a Jewish school in Toulouse. Knoll's murder was decried by Jewish organizations in France, and then it it goes on. Uh, It talks about uh, the the chief rabbi in France offering his condolences, and then the article concludes. Um, This this is a 
horrible thing that has happened. An 85-year-old woman murdered brutally for being Jewish. Someone who survived the Holocaust murdered in 2018 for being Jewish. And you know, when I, when I read this story, my heart just hurt for her and for her family and for uh, Jews in France in general. The things that they've gone through in the last few years, it's, it's just not, it doesn't seem like something that should be able to happen today. It seems like this should be a thing of the past. And I, and I realized as I read through that CNN story, I was like, wait a second, they're leaving stuff out here. And I think sometimes, in fact, I know many times, Western media has a way of sugarcoating some things to make it more palatable for whatever particular agenda they think it needs to be made more palatable for. So let's hear this story from another angle. Let's hear this story as told by the Times of Israel. Here's the headline in the Times of Israel. Slain Holocaust survivor's family. She'd known her killer since he was a boy. Family members of Morel Knoll, the 85-year-old Holocaust survivor who was stabbed to death and set on fire in her Paris apartment on Friday night, told Israeli media on Tuesday that she had known one of her assailants, a Muslim neighbor, since he was seven years old. My mother accepted everyone, even the neighbor who murdered her. She had known him since he was seven years old. When he was a boy, he helped her. At first, we weren't sure the murder was due to anti-Semitism. We waited for police to say it, and now we know the truth. Until now, I haven't felt anti-Semitism in France. Of course, there were dangerous Muslim extremists, but until today, I didn't feel in danger. I work with people from all walks of French society. Many are afraid of Muslim extremists, but I didn't feel that until now. Even today, I'm not afraid. There are some who are uneducated idiots, but they exist everywhere in the world. Noah Golfarb, Noel's granddaughter, who now lives in the seaside Israeli town of Herzia, also said her grandmother had known the suspect since he was seven years old and was always happy to see him. It's unbelievable that it ended like this. And the, the, the article goes on, and it talks about the, the, the reactions of various uh, Jewish leaders around the world. And talks more about the about how she evaded the 1942 Nazi roundup of over 13,000 Jews in Paris uh, during World War II, and how less than a hundred of those who were rounded up of the 13,000 survived. But I think it's kind of interesting. Did you notice that CNN didn't quote anything from the family from her family? An 85-year-old woman stabbed 11 times, her apartment looted, and then lit on fire by a Muslim neighbor whom she had known since he was just seven years old. And I read some other articles about this, and he, he, he would help her in her home, around her house. She would help to care for him, all while he was growing up. And this boy becomes a man and brutally, viciously attacks and kills an 85-year-old woman 
who had helped raise him, essentially. Because she was Jewish. And CNN reports it as a, quote, potential hate crime, unquote. There's no mention of her Muslim neighbor, just a neighbor. They mention the murder of Sarah Halim Atal, and they dub it anti-Semitic. Yet they fail to mention that in that case, too, it was a Muslim neighbor who was charged with that crime. CNN mentions the murder of four Jews at a kosher supermarket in Paris. They call it terrorism, but fail to mention it was an Islamist gunman who pulled the trigger. Now, I want to be very clear and careful here and confirm, obviously, that not all Muslims are killers or murderers. In fact, the vast, vast majority have no murderous thoughts or intent of any kind. And if that was not the case, all of the globe would be on fire constantly. Right? It's just not logical to think that. At least not of Muslims in the Western world. In fact, in the case of the Paris supermarket incident, while one Muslim extremist was pulling the trigger, another Muslim who was an employee in the Jewish market hid could have been victims uh, from that danger. So that's not where I'm going with this. What I think, though, that it behooves us to recognize is that when American media presents to us a story, particularly in a tragic case like this one, it is curious to me that you would leave out the detail that one of her attackers was not simply her neighbor, but it was her Muslim neighbor whom she'd known since he was seven years old, and that you would then compare that murder to that of another Jewish woman who was murdered for, quote, anti-Semitic reasons, unquote, but you fail to mention the very clear parallel in that instance that she, too, was murdered by her Muslim neighbor. That's either poor journalism or selective journalism, and I believe it to be the latter. And when we fail to address a cancer, it spreads. We cannot fix a problem if we do not acknowledge that the problem exists. So Western media can choose to turn a blind eye to the fact that it's not France's Christians or Buddhists or atheists who are perpetrating these quote-unquote hate crimes, unquote, against Jews. But in fact, each of these attacks and attackers that CNN listed in their own article, each one of them has a common denominator. And when that factor is overlooked or ignored, it doesn't help to solve problems, nor is it ethical reporting. And look, there are many imams who realize that Islam has a cancer. That if taken at face value and literally interpreted, which, by the way, I personally believe was Muhammad's intent with the Quran. I think when he says, kill the infidels wherever you find them, I think it's kind of hard to turn that into an inspirational poster or interpret it to mean something other than kill the infidels. And the fact that you have quite a few passages of this nature in the Quran makes that really difficult, but I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt here, so stay with me. So these imams, they realize this cancer. They realize the radicalization is not a good thing, and they work to fight against that. And that is a good thing. We need more of Islam's leaders who will stand up and speak out against the radical, or as I prefer, literal, interpretation of Muhammad's teachings. But we don't make those imams' efforts any easier when we pretend that there is no cancer in Islam or that Muhammad never said these things or that we continue to perpetrate this myth that Islam, uh, when, when taken, as I would say, literally, is a peaceful religion. Islam is not a peaceful religion, nor is it a progressive religion. Now again, caveat, many, 
I would argue most Muslims worldwide, or many Muslims worldwide, and most Western Muslims are both peaceful and progressive. But if you look at Middle Eastern and Pacific regions where Islam is taken in its literal form, there is almost always one or more branches of this religion which are not only practicing Muhammad's teachings literally, but also radically, and if radically, then dangerously. Dangerous to anyone who would dare to think differently than them, whether within or without the fold of Islam. Dangerous to women. Dangerous to children. Dangerous to society. You don't believe me that this is dangerous for children? How about, how about this story from the UK? A Western country. The Telegraph in the UK reported this. ISIL, or ISIS, obsessed teacher who trained an army of children is jailed for life. In the UK, this story reported this week, Tuesday, in a Western, modern culture. This story may send chills down your spine. Are you ready for this? An unqualified teacher who trained a mini-militia of children for terrorist attacks in London has been jailed for life. Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, ISIL, or Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, fanatic Umar Haq, 25, planned to use guns and a car bomb to strike 30 high-profile targets, including Big Ben, the Queen's Guard, and Westfield Shopping Center. He enlisted helpers at the Ripple Road Mosque in Barking, East London, where he secretly brainwashed 16 children as young as 11 years old through terrorism role play and exercises. The boys have been left traumatized from being shown gory propaganda by Hawk from ISIS. The defendant also admitted to playing ISIS films to pupils at the Lantern of Knowledge fee-paying school in Layton where he had worked. The worst aspect was the deliberate and sustained grooming of children to join a mini-militia unbeknown to their parents who had paid for after-school classes at the mosque. He is a very real threat to the young and old alike, the judge said. Hawk was a dangerous liar. He is intelligent, articulate, and persuasive with an easy smile. He is narcissistic and clearly enjoys the power he wields over others. Fundraiser for this guy... Was 19 years old, was said to have renounced his extreme, the, the his leader's extreme views of Islam, but was jailed for 12 years without a further year on extended license. Hawk's confidant, Muhammad Abid, 27 years old, a qualified cupping therapist, was handed four years and three months in prison for failing to report the plot. I'm sorry. Confidant, the guy that knew all of this, the guy that knew that there is an Islamic extremist who is using a mosque's after-school programs to train a little mini-militia, a little ISIS children army by subjecting boys as young as 11 years old to ISIS propaganda videos and their parents, their parents don't know about this. <sighs> Tell me again how radical Islam is not dangerous to children, how Muhammad's teachings when taken literally are not dangerous to children, they are dangerous for children. Still don't believe me that Muhammad's teachings taken literally are dangerous? How about if we read a piece next from a gal named Diba Abidi, an Indian-American Muslim woman, a Muslim advocate 
who had this piece published not in Infowars or The Blaze or Fox News or any kind of right-wing conservative media pick-your-favorite one. No, no. This was published in the Huffington Post. Headline. How liberals are letting down Muslim women every day. Are they blind to the injustices perpetrated by Islamic culture? Now again, this is written by a Muslim woman in the Huffington Post. This is what she said. She said, for as long as they have existed, liberals have prided themselves as the promoters of freedom of religion, expression, and equality. At face value, these concepts are the key ingredients to a thriving society. However, a deepening abyss has been growing between the original ideals of the liberal movement and what they actually support. I'm confounded at liberals' faithful, unconditional support of Islamic culture. After all, it is the very opposite of what liberals claim to celebrate and uphold. Instead of exposing and critiquing the components of Islamic culture that are in direct opposition to their core beliefs, liberals prefer to quiet critics of the religion, regardless of facts and experiences. Muslim women are the silent majority in the matter, and their experiences and voice are often dismissed. Their opinions and plight are largely met with harsh treatment and more oppression. This presents a paradox for those seeking to uphold the values of liberals, but expose their contradictory stances as well. Liberals have built a platform on concepts such as freedom of expression, gender equality, and religious freedom. They relentlessly oppose and attack those who they perceive as violators of these human rights. During the 2016 presidential election, there was a huge outcry against the statements President-elect Donald Trump had made about women. Many critics argued that since his stance on a woman disqualifies, disqualifies him from running a country that prides itself on being a progressive nation... Liberals used every media outlet they could to highlight this shortcoming, replaying sound bites of Trump's conversation repeatedly to garner support for their position. But while Trump's indiscretions toward women may be alarming, they are not nearly as alarming as the culture of Islam that the liberals unconditionally support. More than any other major religion, Islam is closely associated with oppressive views toward women, violence, terrorism, and inequality. Even in moderate Islamic nations such as Turkey, freedom for everyone is no guarantee. Just recently, a Turkish girl was sentenced to two years in prison and 100 lashes for being raped by her neighbor. According to the Sharia courts, she was not accompanied by a male guardian, thus making herself more accessible to rape. Liberals largely ignore these common human rights violations and often refuse to speak out. Instead, they attempt to separate the violence and oppression associated with Islam and label it as, quote, Islamic extremism, unquote. Outside of terrorist groups such as al-Qaeda and ISIS, Sharia law is still the prime influence and governing standard in many Islamic countries. Despite the numerous facts and experiences that are presented to liberals, they still align themselves with support for Islam, which is not consistent with the values they vehemently strive to uphold. Liberals attempt to promote freedom of expression, religion, and equality by ignoring or harshly condemning any valid critiques of Islam. For the sake of seeming non-discriminatory, they separate the very culture of Islam, a culture that is steeped in oppressive thought and ideology, and label those who carry out Sharia law as extremists. Liberals tell the masses that Islam is a peaceful religion, and those who do not behave peacefully are not true Muslims. They belong to a radicalized faction of Islam. The fear of speaking out against the ills of this religion in the name of being inclusive is the very reason they have blindly sided with governments and ideas that support oppression and inequality. Outspoken Muslim women often have a hard time fully supporting liberals due to these inconsistencies. Liberals fail to capture the reality and experiences of countless Muslim women. As a Muslim woman, I am placed in the barren middle. 
To which group can Muslim women devote their allegiance? On one end, there is radical Islam, a section of Muslims that regularly violates women. They persistently bully and terrorize the religious minorities in Muslim-majority regions of the world. Violence is their means to garner attention, spread influence globally, and strike fear into their opponents. Being a vocal opponent to this form of extremism from members of the far right often falls on deaf ears. In predominantly Muslim countries, women are met with harsh treatment or death when they criticize the shortcomings of Islam. On the opposite end, there are liberals, a group that has become so politically correct that they shun any constructive criticism of Islam. In the name of inclusiveness, they have muted any negative rhetoric of Islam. It is concerning that my experiences, along with those of myriads of other women, coupled with facts, are not enough to warrant a thorough examination of the support liberals extend to Islamic states unconditionally. Liberals' inability to truthfully reflect and admit that there are fundamental issues with Islam prevents their ideologies from ever thriving. The same groups the liberals vow to represent are the same groups that are become more vulnerable under their agenda. And she continues and concludes, the same groups the liberals vow to represent Oh, I just read that. As a Muslim woman, I am caught in a conundrum. Many liberals are morally and politically confused, despite their best intentions. When they align themselves with a group of individuals that oppress women and religious minorities, they are actively working against their fight for peace, inclusiveness, diversity, and liberty. It is dangerous and it is a dangerous and regressive catch for those Muslims who identify as liberals, as they must struggle for their voices and experiences to be heard and fight radical Islam and Sharia law. That's a Muslim woman's perspective on Islam and its presentation by liberals in this country, written in the Huffington Post. See, what CNN and our Western world in general has and is doing is exactly what Ms. Ms. Abadi outlined. We ignore facts and experiences if they do not align with the politically correct view that we are trying to put forward, but in turning a blind eye, we neglect the very people we aim to help. Honesty is the best policy. Yes, the truth sometimes hurts. And yes, we should present that truth in love. But until we are willing to take an honest look at issues as they present themselves every day, until we're willing to take off our liberal glasses or our GOP glasses or whatever is our favorite brand of glasses, until we take off the glasses, we won't see the truth and we certainly won't present that truth in love. Or, to put it another way, do we see as God sees? Or do we only see what we want to see? All right. We are back. You're listening to 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church. Next up, um, I'm not enjoying the show today. It's so heavy. But tomorrow's Friday. It'll be better. It'll be better tomorrow. Justice, former, former, former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens made waves earlier this week. You've probably heard about this. Uh, let's, let's, let me introduce you first. Uh, to John Paul Stevens, former Supreme Court Justice. He was Associate Justice from 1975 to 2010 when he retired. Uh, most Supreme Court Justices do not retire. Most of them, well, I mean, unless it's dangerous to their health to continue, they do not just step down. This, isn't, this is not something that is 
normal happenstance in modern Supreme Court history. So that in and of itself is a pretty big deal. Uh, he was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1920. He became a circuit judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals in 1975, or I'm sorry, in 1970. And in 1975, he was appointed to the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court. He was appointed by, who was he appointed by? Uh, he was appointed by Ford. He was appointed by President Gerald Ford. He was expected to be a moderate. He was a registered Republican at the time. And if you have heard anything about him in the past week, you, you've probably heard that. Um, that little fun bit of trivia about how John Paul Stevens was a Republican parroted uh, often and regularly. And, you know, that's that's cool. That's good. That's fine. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, we, we just we take a person's political party or the party affiliation that they say, oh, I am this. And we then assume that that means certain things about them. Which is not necessarily always the case. Now, your first major clue. If I say to you, oh, he was a Republican and then I follow that up with. He retired in 2010. If you understand the way the Supreme Court works and you have any sort of a politically minded uh, thought process, your mind is going to go tick, 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 back to 2010. And you're going to be like, who was, oh, Barack Obama was president. Oh, that means that Barack Obama would appoint his replacement. Oh, that means his replacement was probably not a Republican. Why would you retire if you're a Republican when there's a Democrat in office? That's a valid point. That's a valid point. Um, so let's uh, let's look at why former Justice John Paul Stevens was in the news this week. He's in the news this week because he wrote a piece. Oh, okay. New York Times. No, I am not a subscriber. I just want to see the article. <sighs> the New York Times is um, blocking me from seeing the article. Let's see if it works this way. Okay, there we go. There's a way to get around it sometimes when the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or anybody like that that wants to charge you money to read their articles. Uh, sometimes this works, not always. Pro tip for you real quick and then we'll dive into this. If you click on the link and they're like, oh, sorry, how much would you like to pay to be able to read this? Would you like a basic subscription for $14.95 or the deluxe model for $199.72? Okay. No. X out. Google search it, click on the link from Google, and sometimes that gets you around the firewall thing, blocker, whatever it is. I just did that. So now, this is what John Paul Stevens wrote in the New York Times this week, which is why everyone is talking about him. Because, you know, the Republican justice and everything. He said, um, do I want to read this whole thing? How much time do I Yeah, we'll read the whole thing. This is what he says. Rarely in my lifetime have I seen the type of civic engagement school children and their supporters demonstrated in Washington and other major cities throughout the country this past Saturday. These demonstrations demand our respect. They reveal the broad public support for legislation to minimize the risk of mass killings of school children and others in our society. That support is a clear sign to lawmakers to enact legislation prohibiting civilian ownership of semi-automatic weapons, increasing the minimum age to buy a gun from 18 to 21 years old, and establishing more comprehensive background checks on all purchases of firearms. But the demonstrators should seek more effective and more lasting reform. They should demand a repeal of the Second Amendment. 
Concern that a national standing army might pose a threat to the security of the separate states led to the adoption of that amendment, which provides that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Today, that concern is a relic of the 18th century. For over 200 years after the adoption of the Second Amendment, it was uniformly understood as not placing any limit on either federal or state authority to enact gun control legislation. In 1939, the Supreme Court unanimously held that Congress could prohibit the possession of a sawed-off shotgun because that weapon had no reasonable relation to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. During the years when Warren Burger was our Chief Justice from 1969 to 1986, no judge, federal or state, as far as I'm aware, expressed any doubt as to the limited coverage of that amendment. When organizations like the National Rifle Association disagreed with that position and began their campaign claiming that federal regulation of firearms curtailed Second Amendment rights, Chief Justice Burger publicly characterized the NRA I was perpetrating one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat the word fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. In 2008, the Supreme Court overturned Chief Justice Burgers and others' long-settled understanding of the Second Amendment's limited reach by ruling in the District of Columbia versus Heller that there was an individual right to bear arms. I was among the four dissenters. That decision, which I remain convinced was wrong and certainly was debatable, has provided the NRA with a propaganda weapon of immense power. Overturning that decision via a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Second Amendment would be simple and would do more to weaken the NRA's ability to stymie legislative debate and block constructive gun control legislation than any other available option. That simple but dramatic action would move Saturday's marchers closer to their objective than any other possible reform. It would eliminate the only legal rule that protects sellers of firearms in the United States, unlike every other market in the world. It would make our school children safer than they have been since 2008 and honor the memories of the many, indeed far too many, victims of recent gun violence. Okay, so first of all, let me note that <laughs> when the New York Times posted this article, they posted it with a picture of a of a uh, of a long gun musket, an 18th century like redcoat style musket, next to an AR-15. Their description of the photo <laughs> was a rifle from the 18th century when the Second Amendment was written, and an assault rifle of today. They the 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 they amended the piece to say oh uh actually we erroneously said that the musket was a rifle it is not a a rifle and they put these two pictures next to each other the thing is that they shoot bullets the same way Except not at all, because it's not a rifle. This is a. This is in fact. It's a. It looks like it's a flintlock, uh, rifle that they're using or a musket in this picture, which means that you have to actually pull the rod out of the barrel, and then uh, you get a you get a wad and you get your bullet and you shove it into the into the barrel of this musket and then you use the ramming rod to ram it down in there and then you actually have to um, put powder in the gun and then you pull back the flint and then you fire it. My dad has one of these guns. It's actually really cool and when my sisters would bring home my say sisters it's really only bethany that would bring home the boyfriends because jesse and anna um just okay i'm gonna get myself in trouble so i'm just gonna let that go but when you know just people we'll just call them people uh would come over (laughs) to my parents house depending on how much powder you put in these things would determine how strongly that weapon would back would kick would like (laughs) 
And you could put so much powder in these things, it would knock over a full-grown man. It was fantastic. I watched multiple young suitors. My dad take them out in the backyard, and my brothers would just pour in this powder. And these poor, <laughs> these poor guys, they think they're shooting a twenty-two, and they're like, kaboom! And they fall over. It was... Anyway, this has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm trying to talk about, but I had to get in a little bit of levity because I'm about to just rip this apart, okay? We have a former Supreme Court justice. I left out the headline on purpose. Here's the headline. John Paul Stevens, colon, repeal the Second Amendment. And all this week, if you've heard about this, you've been like, see, see, the Republican justice is saying we need to repeal the Second Amendment. See, he gets it. He gets that these kids understand more than the adults. And and this huge rally. Well, first of all, okay, less than, what was the number? I think it's less than 8% of the st- people who participated in the March for Our Lives rally were actually students. The average age of pretty much everyone at this rally was 49 years old. All right. So that's the first thing that the justice gets wrong. I mean, the headline in itself is just erroneous. But this wasn't like a mass movement of all these high schoolers, all these young people converged on Washington, D.C. And why don't we understand what they understand? No, it was it was barely any high schoolers. It was mostly middle aged adults. Who, you know, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to leave that out. Leave it out. Don't do it, Crystal. Okay. And everybody's like, oh, this justice, he gets it. And he's a Republican. So the rest of you Republicans, you need to just you need to just jump on board with this justice. All right. So, oh, mm, now the Washington Post is doing to me what the New York Times did. I see. I see. Okay. Um, I wanted to read this one to you, too, but I don't know if I can get around. Uh, let me see. Real quick here. This is not a new position uh, for Justice Stevens. In fact, he wrote an article for the Washington Post, which I'm trying to get to, uh, in April 11th of 2014. (laughs) See? Worked again. Uh, He wrote this article. Headline, the five extra words that can fix the Second Amendment. Now, I'm not going to read this whole one to you, um, but... He he wrote this one following the massacre, or, or I'm sorry, uh, his his premise for this article um, was about how Newtown, Newtown, Connecticut, the shooting there in December 2012, uh, could have been prevented if we would just fix the Second Amendment. And in his opinion, what we should do is, uh, let me see if I can find it. He put in what he thinks the Second Amendment should be changed to in this article from uh, from the Washington Post. i got to find it. Oh, here we go. He wanted to change the Second Amendment to this. He wanted to change a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's the Second Amendment as it reads right now. He wanted to change it to this. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms when serving in the militia shall not be infringed. Now, it would seem to me... Look, this man is not unintelligent. In fact, I think one could argue he's one of the smartest Americans we've had in recent past. 
But just because someone is intelligent does not mean that they have wisdom in every aspect of their thinking. Because quite frankly, even I understand that if the Second Amendment said a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms when serving in the militia shall not be infringed, that's redundant. That's unnecessary. You understand that if there's a militia, that, that, that they would have arms. That there will be firepower involved. I don't think that the Founding Fathers were like, hmm... What's probably going to happen is we're going to put together a militia and then everyone is going to be shocked that these militiamen have weapons and therefore we must ensure that everyone understands that if you're serving in the militia, you're going to be using weapons. So we best put that in there, Thomas. Thomas, no, no. Madison, could you just throw that, just just mention that the militia, they're going to be armed so that no one has a problem with that when the militia are armed. No, everybody knew that you didn't need the Second Amendment to mention, oh, by the way, our army is going to have weapons. No, that's, that's, no. And I understand that the militia and the army are not the same thing. Okay, for the sake of time, I can't cover everything. Okay, so I told you I wasn't going to read this entire post from him, from the Washington Post, but people that are portraying this as, oh my goodness, look at the conclusion that John Paul Stevens, former Supreme Court Justice, who was also a Republican, arrived at. Why don't the rest of you understand? No, it's not like that. He wrote this article in 2014. Four years ago, he had the same exact thought. He just, instead of uh, amending the Second Amendment to basically make it completely irrelevant, he's gone from, oh, we'll just add these five words and then it will make it completely null and void, to, we'll just get rid of it altogether. It's, he's basically doing the same thing, just using different words. But in this article that he wrote in the Washington Post in 2011, I'm not, I, didn't, I didn't read you all of it. I'm not going to read you all of it. In fact, I didn't read you any of it yet. But what I want you to know is, is, the, is this. The last two, two paragraphs in his Washington Post article. Are you ready? I'm going to read these to you and then we're going to go very quickly through my commentary on this because I'm so fast running out of time. This is what he wrote in 2000... Uh, I'm sorry, not 2011. 2014. Emotional claims that the right to possess deadly weapons is so important that it is protected by the federal constitution... Uh, it distort intelligent debate about the wisdom of particular aspects of proposed legislation designed to minimize the slaughter caused by the prevalence of guns in private hands. Those emotional arguments would be nullified by the, by the adoption of my proposed amendment. The amendment certainly would not silence the powerful voice of the gun lob lobby. It would merely eliminate its ability to advance one mistaken argument. It is true, of course, that the public's reaction to the massacre of schoolchildren, such as the Newtown killings, and the 2013 murder of government employees at the Navy Yard in Washington may also introduce a strong emotional element into the debate. That aspect of the debate is, however, based entirely on facts rather than fiction. The law should encourage intelligent discussion of possible remedies for what every American can recognize as an ongoing national tragedy. Now, I want you to remember that because we're going to go back to those thoughts of his in just a minute. But first... Here are some things you need to know about Justice John Paul Stevens, who's being portrayed as this hero Republican justice who is so uh, open-minded that he understands what the rest of you, if you deem yourself conservative or pro-Second Amendment, don't understand. Here's some things you should know about Justice John Paul Stevens, particularly if you're a millennial and you don't really remember his actual, uh, how, he, how he ruled on the Supreme Court. 
Justice John Paul Stevens is pro-abortion. He's anti-death penalty. He dissented in Bush versus Gore. And obviously, anyone can hold any political position they want. However, it is insightful to understand the philosophy of a man to understand the motive behind his words and actions, right? A man's theology will dictate his philosophy, his philosophy will dictate his morality. Perhaps it could be argued that former Justice Stevens is of a leftist philosophy, though deeming himself a Republican the way that his actions do not reflect what most would have you believe that R next to his name would represent. Perhaps, in fact, it could be argued that his emphatic statements uh, in this Washington Post article of what is fact and what are, are, are not facts are outside the realms of actual fact. Perhaps his presentation of of eight paragraphs in the New York Times about why we should uh, get rid of the Second Amendment are not so much based on fact as they are the justice only hearing and then parroting one side of this debate. To say, for example, that the public's reaction to the murder of school children invokes an emotional element into the Second Amendment debate, which, by the way, we've now officially moved past a gun control debate, which is now a Second Amendment debate. Uh, but to say that, this, that, that when something like this happens, there's an emotional response, that is factual. But to follow up that thought by saying the emotional element there is based in, quote, entirely on fact, unquote, is perhaps... Not entirely factual. Rather, it implies that anyone emotionally moved to be anti-gun based on a school shooting does so by an understanding of the, quote, fact that guns equal violence and evil and thus further implies that anyone who is not so moved is operating outside the realm of factual understanding. But what is not understood or discussed by the justice are the actual, real Very real facts related to murders and crimes in cities where Second Amendment rights, if you will, are non-existent. The argument that justice not only fails to hear, but even fails to acknowledge, are the mind-blowing stories of horror from cities where firearms are most regulated, as opposed to cities, or even cultures and societies, where they are not. He fails to mention the terror that reigns in Chicago, the gun control capital of our country, where 19 people were shot this past weekend and 43 children under the age of 16 have already been shot this year. He also fails to mention the success of gun-friendly nations like Switzerland, where over 2 million of the country's 8 million residents, in other words, there's basically a gun in every house, and over 2 million of the country's 8 million residents own firearms in one of the safest countries in the world. And yet, with the former justice's declaration in the New York Times that we should repeal the Second Amendment, he trended. Justice John Paul Paul Stevens trended, Supreme Court justice trended, and repeal the Second Amendment trended on Twitter for most of the day, I believe it was on Tuesday, that he released this article. John Paul Stevens, Supreme Court justice, and repeal the Second Amendment all trended. Now, Twitter only shows you, I think it's the top ten trending topics, and three of them were related to this issue for most of an entire day. Now you say, well, who cares? It's Twitter. Well, here's here's why you should care. Roughly 20% of Americans are on Twitter, so one in five. And Twitter is statistically uh, a platform for social media users who are thought of as, as either uh, more educated or more affluent or both than users of other social media platforms like, say, Snapchat or Instagram, for example. It's usually a little bit, uh, it's, it's very uh, millennial on up type platform. So you have a forum where one in five quote-unquote educated Americans are engaged that is trending repeal the Second Amendment for the majority of a workday. This is trending. 
on this platform where one in five Americans are hanging out. Repeal the Second Amendment. Trending. In the United States for the greater part of a work day. All because one man wrote an eight-paragraph article in the New York Times. Eight paragraphs, and Twitter launches an all-out discussion on repealing a constitutional amendment that has stood in this country for well over 200 years. That is the power of social media, but more so, that is the power of an idea. 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, this idea would have been largely rejected by our society, even as laughable. We would have recognized and considered and put forward the history of other nations who have attempted the disarming of their citizenries and the results that followed. But we're no longer willing, uh, and I'm speaking in broad terms now, we're no longer willing in our culture to have a conversation. Everything is a confrontation, or as David Hogg said, a revolution, right? Your facts don't matter. Only my facts matter. My facts are right and your facts are wrong. Or worse still, my meme is factual and your meme is crazy. I mean, we teeter dangerously as a culture where we no longer think about how our opinions, our ideas, our actions affect other people. It's all about me and what I think. It's the age of the selfie, the age of instant fame, the age of my right is right and you don't question that or you're a bigoted, racist, sexist, insert your favorite term here. We see a meme or a headline, we share the meme, or we parrot the headline. We don't take the 30 seconds to Google if the meme is accurate. We don't take the two minutes to click the clickbait headline and read the actual content of an article. We no longer test ideas. As long as they're aligned with what my opinion is based on that meme or that headline I saw, we latch onto it and we share it, we spew it, we capture ideas, and then parade them about without any thought to the results of those ideas. And though we may not now see the long-term results in the current idea battle that's raging in our country or that's 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 happened before like for example, the disarming of the German populace prior to World War II, we can see the results of that now. But we don't see the short-term results of our idea battles. What we can see is the constant bickering on social media. We can see the, cons- the, the, the conflict and the strife as one side is constantly pitted against another in an endless battle of right versus left as one marches and then one side marches and the other side marches and back and forth and round and round and round we go and we end up with confused children and confused ch- teenagers and confused voters as we watch the struggle and we hear the arguments and each side says theirs is the only truth. Conflict, struggle, confusion, chaos... All because of an idea. Have you read the book of James in the New Testament lately? We believe this book was written by Jesus' brother James, and it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And it's uncanny to me how 2,000 years later, more than 2,000 years later, well, well, I'm not going to go there. Uh, the issues James wrote about are so relevant to our world today. Listen to this from James chapter 3. In many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. 
and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends from not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. And where does the envying and strife come from? From an unbridled tongue, from a big mouth, from words. And what are words but the expression of an idea? So how do we communicate right ideas? How can we combat things that are false without simply adding to the conundrum and the chaos? I think James has the answer to that as well. He continues his thought from chapter 3 into verse into into chapter rather 4. And I'm, and I'm quickly running out of time so I'm going to I'm going to skip I'm not going to read the first few verses. But down in verse 6 he says, "But he that is God giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourself therefore to God, and he will I'm sorry. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his lover, brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. Speak not evil of your brother. When you're presenting truth, don't use personal attacks. You want your voice to be heard? Then be humble. Be willing to listen and to ask questions. You want to make a difference in the conversation? That's the key. Just be humble. Humble yourself in the sight of God and he will lift you up. You may never write an eight-paragraph article that makes Twitter trend about repealing a constitutional amendment, but I've got a secret for you. Twitter can trend all it wants. Twitter trends aren't going to repeal the Second Amendment. An eight-paragraph article... And the New York Times isn't going to bring an end to this country. Twitter doesn't change hearts. 
And the New York Times, quite honestly, doesn't change minds. You know what can change someone's mind? A conversation with a friend. A conversation with a friend who is real and honest and humble. Willing to listen. Willing to hear the other side of the argument. Willing to have a conversation rather than a confrontation. And as for people's hearts, only one man can change a heart. Doesn't matter how many high schoolers or 49 year olds march on Washington, D.C. It doesn't matter how many high schoolers go and meet with the president or meet with congressional officials. Only one man can change a heart. And his name is Jesus Christ. And this Sunday, we're going to be celebrating him, his life, and what he did in the greatest, we call it a story, but it's not even a story because it's history, but in the greatest history ever told, we're going to be celebrating the life of Jesus this Sunday here at Liberty Baptist Church. It's the biggest Sunday of the year. In fact, this Sunday, what we celebrate is the reason that Liberty Baptist Church is here in this community. It's the reason that any church exists that loves Jesus. Do you know what that reason is? It's not a secret. And if you come on Sunday, we're going to talk all about it. 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11.15. Come join us as we celebrate Jesus the only one capable of producing any real change in this world. 6501 West Lake Mead Boulevard is our address, and we would love to have you here with us as we celebrate Easter. This Sunday, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11.15. Liberty Baptist Church, we're on the corner of Rainbow and Lake Mead, Caddy Corner, uh, from the Best Buy, and we would love to have you with us. I've run out of time. I had so many more things to talk with you about. I wanted to talk about Disney princesses and different kinds of tears, but... Alas, we shall have to save them for next week. Tomorrow, though, tomorrow is going to be a fun day. I think you're really going to enjoy the stories I put together for you tomorrow, so I hope you'll join us again. Then have a fantastic, wonderful, blessed day, and, uh, you know, we'll see you back here tomorrow. Sound good? All right, cool. See you later.